Uh, but let's pray. Let's ask for God's help as we come to hear from his word. Uh, Heavenly Father, the Lord Jesus told us that unless we abide in him, unless we remain in him, uh, we can do nothing. So, Father, we pray that in your kindness and by your spirit now, you would cause us to behold the Lord Jesus in all his greatness, that you would deepen our conviction of how good he is, and you would move us to have lives that reflect his character, his love for his glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Well, I wonder what you think is the greatest movie uh, of all time, or or maybe even what you think is the most voted greatest movie of all time. Anyone want to guess? The Empire Strikes Back or Shark Tales. (laughs) That's a real contrast, isn't it? Uh, Well, according, maybe Shawshank Redemption, that's up there, but the most common of all is a movie called Citizen Kane. Now, I know what probably most of you uh, are thinking. It doesn't really sound like a Marvel movie, uh, and if it is, you haven't seen it yet, nor have you seen it on Disney+. Uh, That's because it's a movie from 1941 uh, about a magazine giant, Charles Kane. Uh, It might not sound very compelling to you, but it is the most, uh, I think, most voted, most widely recognised greatest movie of all time, but of course, for everywhere that the number one movie award is given, there are about five sites purely dedicated to telling you why that's not the case. Uh, In fact, it's a greatly debated topic, but for me, it really raises the important question of how would you actually decide that? What criteria would you use to determine the greatest movie of all time? Is it the amount of money it makes? Uh, Is it uh, how many times it's been watched or hours of streaming? Uh, Is it its Rotten Tomatoes score? Or maybe is it the most original idea, the influence it's had and so on? Maybe it's the most diverse fan base that it's got. But it really kind of shows us that whatever criteria you would use, we are a world obsessed with what is great. We love greatness, whether it's movies, sporting teams, players, songs, artists, political leaders. The greatness question is often debated every year. Virtually every sporting code, in fact, has an annual award to crown the best, the greatest player, which inevitably uh, inevitably begins the debate, of course, who's the greatest of all time? Is it LeBron or is it Jordan? Is it Federer or Djokovic, Matthews or Ablett, and so on? The concern for greatness, the desire for greatness, it's intrinsically connected, bound with all forms of sport, and I think we'd say all forms of competition, really, But that shouldn't surprise us because the desire for status, for recognition, for praise, what we might call greatness, just naturally flows out of the human heart. Uh, We find, I think, naturally ourselves uh, comparing ourselves to others. It's why we're highly selective about what we post online or what we share about our lives. It shapes the decisions we make, like which university or school we'll go to, what job or clothes we'll wear, our tech, or anything else we think will elevate us and give us the status and the recognition that we so desperately desire. And in our passage tonight, Mark chapter 9, Jesus addresses the question of greatness head on. And what I think will surprise us about what Jesus has to say is he actually doesn't dismiss the craving at all. 
He doesn't tell us, flee greatness, don't worry about it. In fact, he seems to be all for greatness, but in the most surprising, the most inverted, what we call upside down gospel kind of way. You might recall as we've gone through this series in Mark, he said optimistically, as it's been about three years now we've been doing it, uh, that the Gospel of Mark kind of breaks neatly into two sections, two halves. You've got chapters 1 to 8, which has constantly raised the question and answered it of who is Jesus? And it all culminated in Mark chapter 8 with Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Old Testament promised anointed king who would sit on David's throne, fulfill God's promises and rule all nations for all time. And over the past few weeks, we've seen that status has been yet again confirmed as Peter, James and John went up the mountain and were given a glimpse of Jesus' divine glory in the transfiguration as he was changed before them and then God himself spoke and said, listen to Jesus. And then now we've come down the mountain in chapter 9 and Jesus is going to take his disciples on this journey. We're on the way to Jerusalem where Jesus will suffer and die. And Jesus uses this kind of final journey with them to do some focused discipleship training. If you've got your Bibles open, look at verse 30. We see they leave, they're on their way through Galilee, but Jesus doesn't want the crowds, he doesn't want the commotion, he just wants him and the disciples for the clear purpose, verse 31, to teach them. And so this focused discipleship training on the way to Jerusalem will occupy the rest of chapter 9, all of chapter 10 until they arrive in 11 verse 1 to Jerusalem. And Jesus clearly wants them to grasp two important things here. Firstly, they get that he's the Messiah, but what kind of Messiah is he? That's the first one. And then secondly, how will this actually shape the way they follow him? Uh, But hopefully, if your memory is good, you'll know that that's not a new idea. Because in chapter 8, as Peter confessed Jesus to be the Messiah, Jesus immediately then told them about his own suffering and what being a disciple would look like. Three key things. Denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following Jesus. Mark 8.34. But now in chapter 9, as they come down the mountain with that glimpse of his divine status and glory fresh in their minds... Jesus again brings them back to that central reality that he is a suffering king. Verse 31, read it with me. For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after he is killed, three days later, he will rise again. As they head to Jerusalem, as they head to Jesus' certain suffering, rejection, and death, He wants them to know for sure that that will not be the outcome of some unfortunate events due to his controversial opinions. He's not going to be merely a victim of some power-hungry political leaders who don't like his influence. Jesus has come to die. It's his divine mission. But I suspect for most of us that's hardly shocking. Uh, This is kind of gospel basics, 101 Christianity, if you like. Uh, But we have to remember how kind of shocking, how counterintuitive that would have seemed to those first disciples. 
Uh, Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. It's like his favourite title of himself. And it references this kind of strange figure from the book of Daniel where he has a vision in chapter 7 of this strange individual who is somehow both human yet divine as he approaches God, the Ancient of Days, and is given authority to rule over all nations and for all time. And the disciples, they're sure that Jesus is the Son of Man. They've worked that out. They've seen his power from God to heal the sick and drive out demons. Three of them have just come down from a mountain where he was transfigured before him, uh, before them, and they've seen the image of his divine splendor, no doubt still clear in their minds, and not to mention the voice of God clear in their ears. They have no doubt that he's the Son of Man. This is God incarnate. This is the Messiah come to save. But how will he do it? Rejection, suffering, death. That is odd. It's like finally making it and being drafted to your favourite footy team only to have the coach tell you the strategy is just to throw every game. Like playing for Gold Coast. Uh, Or it's like enlisting in the army and then that decorated general comes and says, here's the plan, head on into enemy territory, unarmed, die. That's the mission. It's odd, it's counterintuitive. And why is that the strategy? Why is that why Jesus has come? Because that's the saviour we need. Look again closely. Jesus says he's going to be betrayed, or better translated, delivered into the hands of men. This is language straight from one of the clearest, most wonderful, yet confronting Old Testament promises in Isaiah 53. In that promise, both verse 6 and verse 12, we are told that this servant of God is going to be delivered, same language, same word, and there will be two shocking elements about this delivering. Firstly, the servant of Isaiah 53 is going to be delivered over to rejection, suffering and death by none other than God himself. God will deliver him into the hands of men to die. But secondly, he is going to be delivered by God to death in our place. Isaiah 53, 6, he's going to go to the cross because we are like sheep that go astray, that are prone to wander, prone to reject and ignore and sin against our holy God. The servant will die, verse 12, to bear our sins because of our iniquity. You see, our sin, it leaves us exposed and guilty before God, worthy of his judgment of eternal death. And Jesus says, I've come to take that for you. I'll be delivered over to death in your place. Despite hearing it for now the second time, the disciples in verse 32, they're afraid and they're silent. Which again, if you've read Mark 8, you'll know not surprising. Last time Peter spoke up, Jesus called him Satan. This time, they've got nothing to say. You see, God has come among them. God is walking on earth. We can know him, have access to him forever, only if he dies in our place first. It's little wonder that they're silent and little wonder that Jesus will have to tell them a third time in chapter 10 and they still won't get it. And so for us, while again, this language, this idea, it will be familiar, I have no doubt, a crucified Lord, 
We must not let them lose their wonder and their majesty and what they tell us about the Lord Jesus. Consider the great lyrics, My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. I wonder if you think you get it. Because what Jesus says next actually shows us that the measure by which you get the crucifixion, the measure by which you get that Jesus had to come and die, will actually be seen in the way you respond. This is made explicitly and awkwardly clear as Jesus has a question for the disciples in verse 33. Uh, they're now in Capernaum, they're in a house, and Jesus brings, this, uh, brings up this argument that he's heard them having, or maybe he's been told about. And there is meant to be a disturbing contrast here. Uh, Jesus has just been teaching them about his impending death and suffering and rejection, and they've been debating which one of the disciples is the greatest. Uh, It's no wonder in verse 34 that, as Jesus says, what are you guys talking about? No one wants to say anything, but the problem with Jesus is always that he knows. Uh, And so maybe this has actually been on their mind for some time. Maybe it's come up because of the transfiguration. Why was it that only three of the 12 got to go up the mountain and see Jesus transfigured? Uh, Maybe it's been their concern because, uh, you know, they couldn't cast out the demon that we heard about last week and they want to know why. Maybe it's a greatness issue. Or maybe it's as they start to understand the greatness of Jesus, that he really is the Son of Man and the Messiah, they want to make sure that they are first in line for the spoils of following the Divine Son. Who is the greatest among us? It's an almost unimaginable thing for them to be arguing about, right, in light of Jesus' own impending suffering. Uh, you know, can you imagine it that Neil has just finished preaching and then he's walking around the supper hall and putting out spot fires all over the place as we're all debating, who do you think's the greatest at Bundy? Like, it's almost unimaginable. But I think actually what is unthinkable is that we'd actually voice it, not that we would think it or have concern for it. You see, more than our concern for which movie or athlete is the greatest is our desire and our concern to make sure that we are getting the recognition, the praise, or even the sufficient status we think we deserve. Most of us probably know the the frustration, the hurt, the anger when we don't get the acknowledgement that we think we should whether it's the promotion or the award in our workplace, or maybe it's even just as simple as not being asked to be involved in a ministry or an opportunity at church that you think you would have been grateful. I think we get that desire. The disciples clearly do, as they are both ashamed and silent. And so kind of like a a parent sitting down their child to have the talk, verse 35, Jesus sits down, assumes his favourite teaching position, calls them to himself, and he surprisingly says, "Don't, don't ignore greatness, stop arguing about greatness. He defines it for them. He says, be truly great. Look at verse 35. If anyone wants to be first, he must be last and servant of all. 
True greatness, says Jesus, is being a servant of all, of looking to what benefits, serves and encourages or enables others. And it won't be passive. It will actively look for what is needed and respond to those needs. You see, the cross-shaped life that follows Jesus is costly, self-sacrificial service of others. And so following Jesus and living this life challenges our self-importance. It challenges our desire for recognition and greatness well before and well more importantly than it will challenge us about suffering or dying for Jesus. The cross challenges our self-absorption. And Jesus illustrates the point in verse 36. He took a, a child, perhaps an infant, had him stand among them and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one little child such as this in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but him who sent me. Uh, Jesus picks up a, a child and we might naturally think that's pretty normal. That's expected and maybe it's even kind of cute. But in the first century, uh, it was not so child-obsessed as perhaps we are. Our children were not idealised as kind of cute or innocent or the hope for the future. Uh, no, children were actually a picture of both weakness and vulnerability. High mortality rates. They had low social status. They were under the authority of someone else. They were not autonomous. And they were completely reliant on others for their very survival. And so as Jesus embraces a child, it's a picture of service that was unexpected and actually against the social standard. Because a child could in no way repay or benefit you for serving him or her. And doing so would not improve your social reputation whatsoever. Jesus-like service looks to the needs of others who need it, not what will benefit you. You do it because of Jesus and for Jesus, verse 37. He says, in my name, because in welcoming the child, you are actually welcoming not just Jesus, but even the Father who sent Jesus, verse 37. We welcome, we embrace, we serve the outcast and the needy because Jesus is now calling the shots in our life. And that's what will please him. And as I think about that, I immediately know that I want to be in a community, I want to be in a church that will do that well. That embraces, serves and cares for the needy, the vulnerable and the outcast. But even as I think about it, even as I imagine how good it would be to be in a church like that, I instinctively know that I don't want to be at the coalface of actually doing it. To be great by serving all others. It actually flies in the face of my natural instincts because where I sit, who I speak with, the way I serve, the roster I join, the events I attend are usually all governed by what is comfortable and convenient by putting myself first. And I suspect that you feel that too. 
Because it's so embedded in our culture that has glorified selfishness by saying, look out for yourself. Be true to yourself. Let no one rob you of the good, authentic, pleasurable, self-absorbed life and cut out anyone or anything that will take that away from you. But the cross-shaped life inverts all of that because we follow a servant crucified Lord. And so we serve, we look to the needs of others and we welcome, we encourage, we give because of him. And this need, it's really all around us. In fact, the very definition, the nature of being a church will tell us that. This is a gathering of those who have nothing in common except our acknowledgement and our dependence of our neediness before a holy God. This is the gathering of the unemployed and the employed, the wealthy and the poor, the unimpressive and mildly impressive, the old Christian, the new Christian, the exploring Christian, the not yet Christian, the skeptical, the struggling This is our gathering, and all of these statuses have needs. And so in a community of believers like this, there's going to be financial needs, loneliness, health struggles. There will be need for encouragement, support, someone to talk to, pray with, or just to answer our questions. And putting yourself last is deeply practical. It will be an eagerness to listen to others more than to speak to them. It will mean generosity and compassion. It will mean visiting, caring, calling, even if it's not convenient for you. It will get in contact when others are away or follow them up if you know they're struggling. The cross-shaped life embraces true greatness by serving others because of Jesus and for Jesus. And so understanding that Jesus will be rejected and suffer and die, it's not a merely intellectual or theological issue, it's a hands-on issue that should cause us to respond by looking to the needs of others. But it also needs to be seen in our unity. Jesus makes this point as it's again John who pops up to reveal where he and the disciples are at. Look at verse 38. Uh, John says to Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. Now on the surface, uh, that could be both a sincere and helpful thing that John's done. Uh, It was common in the first century that there would be many people travelling around attempting to cast out demons, whether they were Jewish or some other pagan religion. Many would invoke the name of any god or any power in order to achieve the exorcism. Uh, We actually get a kind of humorous example of this in Acts chapter 19. There's some travelling Jewish exorcists, and they attempt to cast out a demon in Jesus' name, uh, and it doesn't work. In fact, the demon-possessed man comes and beats them up for their trouble. And so on the surface, maybe uh, John's concerned about authentic mission, the reputation of Jesus and the gospel that could be smeared by this pretender. And we don't know anything about him, this random exerciser of demons, except that he's certainly not part of the 12. He's not even familiar to them. But sadly, that doesn't appear to be John's concern at all. Uh, Notice John's issue is not that he doesn't follow Jesus, he probably does. It's the fact that he casts out demons but doesn't follow us. 
And maybe this was especially stinging for John and for the other disciples because this random dude's casting out demons, the very thing we heard last week they were unable to do in verse 18. And so here comes this random non-12, non-inner circle guy doing the very thing that they can't and they think, how dare he? And so John says, we tried to stop him. But no, says Jesus. In fact, why would you? Look at verse 39. Don't stop him. Because there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name who can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For whoever is not against us is for us. Jesus uses pretty two simple logics, right? If he invokes my name to do a miracle and it works, seems pretty unlikely that in the next moment he's going to slander me, right? That's point one. Uh, But secondly, uh, if he's not against us, he's for us. And I don't know about you, but that second one seems like a bit of a surprise to me. Uh, It seems a little bit broad, a little bit open-ended, and a little bit concerning. But remember, it was actually Jesus that warned in Matthew 7 that not everyone claiming to do gospel ministry, claiming to know and do the work of Jesus, Jesus says not everyone really is and he will cast them away. Jesus knows that, yet he still says whoever is not against me is, no, sorry, against us is for us. Uh, and this perhaps is especially odd to us if we recall that Jesus seems to say the exact opposite thing in Matthew 12. It's up on the screen. Matthew 12 verse 30, he says, anyone who is not with me is against me, and anyone who does not gather with me scatters. Mark's got this one, Matthew's got that one, and to make matters worse, Luke's got both of them. Uh, And so they're not mutually exclusive and they're not contradictory. So the question is, what is he doing? And I think the context really matters. When Jesus says in Matthew 12, whoever is not with me is against me, notice the context that the Jewish leaders in response to him casting out demons are accusing him of being the ruler of demons. That's how he can do it. They are seeing and experiencing the ministry, the power of Jesus and deciding he's wicked. He's not worth trusting. He must be a demon and they reject him. But in our passage in Mark 9, Jesus says, whoever is not against us is for us, not in the context of coming to Jesus, but in the context of doing ministry in his name. And so Matthew 12, when it comes to our response to Jesus, whether you turn to him in repentance and faith, Jesus is warning there's really no middle ground. You kind of can't be like mildly okay with Jesus or sort of a Christian. He's either your Lord or he's not. You're either with him or you're against him. It's a call to a decision. But when it comes to our treatment of others who are also laboring in the name of Jesus... We are to be both generous and inclusive. I think Paul models this quite well in Philippians 1, again with a shocking example. He says that there are some people who are preaching Christ out of rivalry and envy. That is, they're preaching the gospel in order to show up Paul and cause him trouble. And what's Paul's conclusion about this? What does it matter? Only that Christ is proclaimed. That's it. And because of this, he even says he will rejoice. 
You see, because the point is not what honours Paul, but what honours Jesus. John wants to stop this guy casting out demons uh, because his issue is not whether it's going to glorify Jesus, but whether this guy's ministry is going to somehow affect him. He's worried about status and recognition at this random outsider who can do the very thing that inner circle can't. And what's totally lacking in John's issue here is any joy and appreciation that Jesus' work is being done and that people are being liberated in Jesus' name, which of course ultimately honours Jesus. Gospel unity should be our priority because that's what honours Jesus. And Jesus even says in verse 41, that's going to be good for you as you labour in the gospel. He says, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, well, truly, I tell you, he will never lose his reward. That's the cross-shaped life where we unite and encourage and serve because we're motivated by the example and the priorities of Jesus rather than absorbed by our own concern for status and recognition. But sadly, as many Christians and churches will know, and perhaps especially in churches like ours of the reformed evangelical frame, uh, I think there's been quick, joyful, and perhaps even at times a smugness as we reject and dismiss others, even despise other Christians because they do it differently from us. Don't read the same books as us. Now, even as I say that, I know that there will always be need and importance to clarify and divide over essential matters. But perhaps at times we've been too eager to do so. And there is a lot of room for generosity and unity because Christ is preached and Christ is honoured. But this kind of self-forgetful unity that's focused on what honours Jesus that preaches the gospel and builds his church is not kind of just a big ministry question. It's actually essential for us as we gather as one church week to week. Because even in our lives together as a church, we can so easily make it all about ourselves and be fueled for this desire of status and recognition. And it's a pursuit that is so destructive to our joy in Jesus, but also to our fellowship. It kind of puts us in competition with other Christians, where we constantly question why others were asked to serve in a role instead of me. Maybe we're frustrated by the praise and recognitions that others receive. We're sceptical about the gifts that Jesus has given other people And we can't be joyful or thankful about what God is doing for them or through them. And it can be slow and at times it can be subtle. But it turns into this destructive mentality where everything is about me and never about Jesus. It makes us jealous, not thankful. Skeptical rather than encouraging. And it makes us want to control everything because we always have to prove ourselves and we filter every decision about how it relates to or affects me. But the cross-shaped life says greatness is being the servant of all, self-sacrificial, the good of others who need it even if it won't benefit us even when others don't notice it or recognise it at all, and yes, even if you weren't asked to do it. 
And I think we know that a church like that, a church that does that well, will be so good to be a part of. Such a powerful witness to an unbelieving world and will adorn the gospel. And so how do we get there? How do we get there if it's so counterintuitive? How do we get there if it is so instinctive for us to do the exact opposite? So different perhaps to what we want to do so different from what we love to put our time and energy into. Well, we'll have to keep coming back to the cross. The cross where the values and ideas of the world have already been turned upside down, where the one who is truly great, the God, the Son, who has all authority, was nailed to a cross to serve his undeserving enemies. And so the question for us is, are we living that cross-shaped life? Is your view of the service, sorry, your view of service and your relationship with other believers marked by a self-forgetful unity or by competition that is so destructive? Can you celebrate the way others are served and, yes, even recognized and successful because ultimately what matters to you is the honor and glory of Jesus? The self-absorbed life is always comparing yourself to others and treating them with a level of jealousy or skepticism. But the self-forgetful life just wants Jesus to be honoured and even others to flourish. Uh, Many of you will know uh, Dane Ortland's great book, Gentle and Lowly. It's received massive praise and recognition around the world and rightly so, as I've said many times, it's one of the best books. But you may not know that there are several others in the Ortland family. Uh, And uh, others in the Ortland family who are also pastors like Dane Ortland and authors like Dane Ortland. In his book on humility, Dane's brother Gavin writes about how people have bought his books and attended his church thinking that he was the acclaimed author of gentle and lowly. And I think any of us that have got siblings would know that that's a pretty awkward situation to be put in as they realise that's not Dane. And Gavin writes in his book that he is so thankful that envy of his brother's success, as he has these awkward moments, hasn't actually been a problem for him by and large but also he has been proactive to avoid any temptation for envy. And so he has made it his regular routine that every time he has that awkward moment of someone realising, so you're not Dane Ortland, and this is not the book you wrote, he says every time he has those moments, every time he has someone come and talk to him about how great the book is or hears about its success, he says he takes time to pray and to thank God for the influence of his brother's book. He says he thanks God for his brother, that more will be sold, and that it will benefit more believers and ultimately glorify Christ as the church is built up. And he says he does this, he makes this his habit, because all of us need, he says, the wonders of the gospel to seep down into every nook and cranny of our soul. He says you must let his love, his joy, his goodness flow into you at the deepest level possible 
meeting the needs and desires that cause us to struggle with envy. A deeper, more profound, more comforting grasp of the gospel of our Saviour who died for us will allow us to be the servant of all and to be self-forgetful in our unity. Because I think right now most of us know what's going to hold us back from actually giving ourselves to service, from putting ourselves last and being the servant of all. Yes, it's going to be hard and costly. Yes, we'll have to put ourselves out there and not be passive, which is scary. But I think more importantly, we worry. We are concerned that we'll just go unnoticed and that our concerns, our needs won't be met as we look after others. Can we really be sure that we won't be forgotten and overlooked if we go and be the servant of all? Well, actually, we can only do it if we're persuaded that God has met all of our needs in Jesus and will continue to provide for us as we give ourselves to his work. As Gavin Altman said, it's about having the gospel infiltrate our lives at the deepest level of desire, which is exactly what we heard in our second reading as Helen read it from Philippians 1. You see, Paul is urging the church to do something so counterintuitive. And as he does that, he grounds them in the cross. Verse 4, he said, Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. And we heard it, didn't we? He spells out this breathtaking majesty of how Christ first served us. Verse 6, that the one who was in very nature God did not use it to his own benefit but emptied himself, became a servant, humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross, verse 8. Because that's true greatness. True greatness that has liberated us from the power and penalty of sin and will liberate us from the self-absorbed life that is destructive to us and to others. So we keep coming back to the cross to shape our priorities, our desires, and ultimately our service. So brothers and sisters, let's keep looking to the cross to give us the joy of self-forgetfulness and enable us to be the servant of all. Let's pray. Father, we confess uh, that we are so easily preoccupied and so quickly concerned, consumed by the desire for our own recognition and status, for our own greatness. We confess, Father, our desire to make every interaction, every decision, every gathering all about ourselves. We confess, Father, we have been consumed with what makes us look good rather than what honours Christ. And so, Father, again we pray that you would cause us afresh to behold the greatness of the Lord Jesus, who was delivered into the hands of men to die, who took the punishment our sin deserved. And, Father, we ask that that gospel, the greatness of our Lord Jesus, would infiltrate down into our hearts at the deepest level so that we can be truly great, the servant of all. We ask for his glory and the good of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen.